Uh, I thought I'd start with a bit of a confession, which is to say uh, it's fairly common that I wish that I could just shut my big mouth. It's not an uncommon occurrence. Uh, you might have gathered, even if you don't know me very well, that I'm a little bit of a talker. I like to kind of verbally process things. There are lots of situations where I wish I did a whole lot less talking and a whole lot more listening. This is a bit of a, a common theme in my life. Uh, growing up, my father used to say to me uh, quite often, Aaron, God gave you two ears and one mouth, so maybe just readjust things a little bit. No, that, that was the kind of vibe. And often this manifests in particular when Gabby and I are having a fight. Uh, which does happen from time to time. And instead of uh, kind of humbly admitting my mistake and confessing my sin to her, I get all self-righteous. I'm sure none of you uh, do this in your married relationships, but I get all self-righteous. I make a whole bunch of excuses. I kind of start as, a, as some sort of defense attorney, presenting my case uh, about why it is. Usually I, I, at some point I blame Gabby, kind of point the finger at her and say, sure, I, I might have done something wrong, but it was only because you did this, you see. It's really, it's really your fault. Uh, and usually you can imagine that that doesn't end that well. Uh, and later on I'm thinking, I, I wish I'd just kept my big mouth shut. I wish I'd stopped trying to defend myself. I'd just actually humbly listen to what Gabby had to say so I could understand her. It's not until, isn't this true, it's not until we, we stop sort of talking at one another that we can actually listen to what the other person has to say and understand what they're saying. And likewise, Paul's aim in this section of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, is to bring every person on the planet who is not a Christian to the place where they would just keep their big mouth shut before God, frankly. Where they would be absolutely speechless before him, recognising that before a holy and pure and perfect God, they really have nothing to say in their defence. They'd be better off just being quiet. Oh, so let me show you this in the text. Right? If you've got a Bible, you might want to flick back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul said there, right at the start of this section, uh, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, for what purpose? So that people are without excuse. Right? So that everyone before God would know that they're without excuse. Romans 2 verse 1, we'll talk about this more in a second, but Paul says here, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. And right at the end of this section, in chapter 3 verse 19, Paul says, Now uh, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. You see, Paul's purpose in this section, uh, it's that everyone would be silent, that people would stop making excuses, stop trying to defend themselves before God. Why does God want that to happen? Well, it's because he knows that no matter what type of person you are, he knows that you need to hear and accept and experience the glorious power of the gospel. And you will not hear it or accept it or experience the power of the gospel if you're still stuck trying to defend yourself before God, trying to justify yourself, trying to build your case before God. God wants us to hear the good news of what he's done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he wants us to know that we're without excuse to stop uh, kind of defending ourselves and making excuses, that we would keep our big mouth shut, essentially. So Paul's message in this big section of his letter is that everyone is sinful, 
Every single person on the planet is not perfect. Everyone deserves to be judged by a holy God. Everyone needs the gospel, the good news. The gospel that we can be saved by God. Everyone needs the gospel, right? Irreligious people need the gospel. You heard this a couple of weeks ago when Adam spoke on the end of chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Uh, those, the, the people in that section of Paul's letter are perhaps those who might stereotypically, thought of, uh, stereotypically be thought of as kind of evil or sinful people, immoral people. You know, like, oh, of course they need the gospel, right? They're, they're the bad people who need to, to be saved from something. But today, in this passage, we see that moralistic people also need the gospel. Right? People who at least have the appearance of being very good and, and respectable people. People who live their lives by very strict uh, moral codes and principles. Those people need the gospel too. And next week we'll see that religious people need the gospel. Right? People uh, who are very devout and, uh, and have all sorts of rituals and they're very pious. Those people also need the gospel. Everyone is sinful, no one's perfect, everyone deserves to be judged by a holy and righteous God. Everyone needs to be saved. Everyone needs the gospel. And so we come to today's passage uh, where the big idea is that moralistic people need the gospel too. But moralistic people need the gospel too. And the first idea we see in verses 1 to 5 uh, is that God's judgment is inescapable because of stubborn unrepentance. Uh, maybe you can imagine, uh, if you've read through the end of uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, uh, maybe you can, uh, the, you know, Paul spoke in that section uh, about God's anger, his judgment uh, against those really bad people, you know, the, the immoral people, the, the idolatrous people. That's the kind of language he used. Uh, and you might imagine someone thinking, yes and amen, Paul. You know, preach it, brother. Those are the horrible sinners that deserve to be condemned. You, know, you, can, you can imagine someone saying that, and Paul knows that. Uh, and so in this section, uh, he goes, this self-righteous, moralistic person who's starting to think that, that maybe God's judgment is for those people out there, but not for them. Maybe they might escape God's judgment. So look, in verse 1, Paul says, uh, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. You can imagine this person. Well, what do you mean I've got no excuse? I'm a good person, not like those people. That's my excuse. Well, Paul says you've got no excuse uh, for, because at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. You hypocrite, Paul said. Can't you see that every time you point a finger at someone else, there's three or four fingers pointing back at you? Can't you see that, Paul says? Because you do exactly the same things. Now, of course, he's not saying that they literally do everything that he listed in that, part of, in that section, uh, that second half of chapter 1. Right? But, but, he, but they do, do at least some of the same things. So if you flick back to the, the last couple of verses of chapter 1, verses 29 to 31, I'll read those out. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, Paul says, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. 
They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Now, I'm sure we all know some really quite self-righteous, moralistic people who are also full of envy. Well, we know these people, don't we? Wouldn't be anyone here, of course, but... People full of envy because they, they don't have what others have and they've got to get their hands on it. Are they full of gossip? Because they've got to tear other people down to make themselves feel better. Right? This is the, the aim of the moralistic person. It's the comparison game. If you can take someone else down a peg or two by gossiping, then you make yourself feel a bit better. And they're full of arrogance or boasting, right? Because they kind of look down their nose at everyone else in the world, thinking that they're better than them. And you might even say that they murder. I don't know, not because they're literally murdering people. They're much too respectable and principled for that. Uh, but Jesus does say in Matthew chapter 5 that even if we harbour a kind of deep anger in our hearts, a contempt for other people in our hearts, uh, it's like we have murdered them. We're guilty of murder. And I don't know if you've been on social media recently, uh, but I know uh, plenty of very moralistic people, both very conservative and progressive, who murder people all the time with their tongues, ripping them apart on social media, treating them with absolute rage and contempt. You hypocrite, Paul says to this person. Whenever you condemn others, you condemn yourself. And of course, Paul knows that this kind of person, a very good and principled person, uh, they're going to agree that it's right for God to condemn such behaviours. Look in verse 2. Uh, he says, Now we know, we kind of all agree, that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. But everyone agrees uh, that, that uh, especially those who pride themselves in having these sort of strict moral principles, everyone agrees that it's right for these behaviours to be judged. It's just that this moralistic person has somehow convinced themselves that they're going to escape God's judgement. Look in verse 3. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgement on them, and yet do the same things. Do, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Yeah, or why, why, would they th why would that thought cross their mind? Sure, God might judge those behaviours, but, but he won't judge me. Why would that cross their mind? Well, probably because life's going so well. Oh, I mean, sure, I'm not perfect. You know, I get a bit of envy here and there, a bit of pride, a bit of gossip. But God seems to be happy with me. Life's going so well. Where's God's judgment? Where is this God of justice? Life's going swimmingly. As so in verse 4, Paul says, you've got it wrong. Right? It's not that you're going to escape God's judgment. It's that God's, God has delayed his judgment because he's so kind and patient. Have a look at verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? No, Paul says the, the only reason you haven't already been condemned for being so self-righteous and hypocritical is that God is so kind. God is delaying his judgement to give you a chance to repent, Paul says. But don't 
Show contempt for God's kindness. Don't presume that his kindness is going to go on forever. Repent while you've got the chance, Paul say. A repentance ever, that, that refers to a deep change of mind that leads to a deep change in life. A deep change of mind that leads to a deep change in life. So you can imagine perhaps for this moralistic person, uh, it would be the change from uh, pride to humility. Either that, that would be the, the, the kind of inner change that's got to go on. It would be the change from excusing their sins to confessing their sins. It would be a change between uh, trusting in their own goodness before God, that's their main defence, uh, towards trusting in God's goodness, in his kindness. So look in verse 5, Paul warns that this moralistic person he's kind of dialoguing with, this hypothetical person, he warns them of what will happen if they don't repent. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. See, let me warn you, Paul says, as it stands, uh, because you're being stubborn rather than humble, unrepentant rather than repentant, uh, one day, I want to warn you, Paul says, that the riches of God's kindness will run out and instead you'll experience the fullness of God's wrath and judgment. The wrath and judgment that's kind of been building and building and building in God's patience, not letting it loose through your whole life, but one day it will come on the day of judgment. Now, let's be honest. On the one hand, that is, that's a, a horrendous thought, isn't it? The thought of God, a holy and righteous God, pouring out, pouring out his wrath and judgment upon sinners like this moralistic person. That, that is a horrible thought. Particularly if you know of, of dear family and friends who, who currently wouldn't want a bar of this. Right? It's a horrible thought. On the other hand, there's a sense in which this day of judgment is the day that all of us have longed for, for our whole life. It picks up on what Beck was saying about her boys. Right? Isn't it true? For, from, uh, practically from the moment we can speak, we've been saying it's not fair. We live in a world, we all know we live in a world that is full of injustice. Things just aren't as they should be. And there's a deep desire in us where we long for this day when every evil will finally be punished. When all hypocrisy will be revealed. When injustice will be set right, when corruption will be exposed, when brokenness will be healed. We long for this day. We long for the day of God's justice. But Paul says to this moralistic person, oh, I want you to be clear that if you don't repent... Your moral principles will not save you from God's judgment. And that's what he's saying. You've got to know this. You've got to be clear that if you do not repent and throw yourself upon God's kindness, your moral principles, no, no matter how principled you are, no matter how better than other people you might be, they will not save you on the, on the day of God's wrath and judgment. God's judgment is inescapable, Paul says, where there is stubborn unrepentance. Uh, second, God's judgment is fair because it's according to what each person has done. 
Right? This is uh, verses 6 to 11. And the main uh, kind of point of this paragraph, uh, you can see it at, at the beginning and the end of the paragraph. If you look at the passage, you'll see in verse 11 uh, that Paul says God's judgment is fair, right? that there's no favoritism with his judgment. And in verse 6, you'll see, uh, why is it fair? Well, because God will repay each person according to what they've done. Uh, th- this idea is all through the New Testament, actually. Jesus himself uh, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, Matthew 16, verse 27, Jesus says, uh, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, uh, Paul says, uh, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm, uh, but the Lord will repay him for what he's done. You know this desire? People ought to get what they deserve. And Paul's saying, the Lord will sort it out. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, uh, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Right? God's judgment is absolutely fair because it's according to what each person has done. And I think instinctively we think, well, that, that's probably fair enough. That's probably fair enough. People should, people should get what they deserve. If there's going to be a God of justice, it should be based on what people deserve. Oh, I think this is a big deal in our culture. And our, um, the cafe around the corner from my house, uh, Crunch Cafe, wonderful cafe. You should all go there. Uh, if you have a meeting with me, I'll take you there. But at Crunch Cafe, uh, they have a jar on the counter. Maybe you've seen this in other cafes. They have a karma jar. Right, a karma jar, and so uh, the basic principle of karma, of course, uh, is that people should get what they deserve. In this instance, if you put lots of tips in the karma jar, uh, all the blessings uh, will overflow onto you. And if you put, uh, if you're a bit stingy and you put many or or no tips in the jar, uh, then you can experience judgment and cursing and trouble and, and whatever else in your life. Well, right, we basically think, well, that's fair, right? You should have put more tips in. Right, it's fair. People get what they deserve based on what they've done. And if it's a 7 and 8, we see that there's two possible outcomes at God's judgment based on what we've done. So if you look there, if you persist in doing good, kind of uh, consistently serving God and others, and then the outcome is eternal life and glory and honour and peace. Wonderful outcome. On the other hand, if you persist in doing evil, kind of predominantly serving yourself, uh, there's eternal trouble and distress uh, and God's anger. And Paul makes it clear that this is true for everyone on the planet. No exceptions. You see there, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That's Paul's way of saying everyone on the planet. The Jews and all the non-Jews, all of humanity is going to experience this judgment. And it's particularly important in this context, because if you've been journeying through Romans with us, you might remember that back in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said that the good news of the gospel is going to go first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. But here he's saying to the Jews, who might be reading this letter, he's saying that doesn't mean that you will escape God's judgment, that God's going to play favourites with you at his judgment. Because if you don't repent humbly and put your trust in the good news of the gospel, you too will be judged on the day of God's judgment. So as hard as it might be to hear, uh, there's something wonderfully clarifying about these verses. All of us live one life, we'll have one death, 
and will face one judgment. That's what Paul's saying. And in that judgment, there's only two possible outcomes. Uh, eternal life in heaven and eternal judgment in hell. I don't know if any of you have watched the, the show The Good Place uh, on Netflix. You know, she's kind of like, why does it have to only be a good place or a bad place? Why, why can't there be a medium place? Like, I'm a medium good person. Why can't there be a medium place? Or, or you know, like, let's, have, let's have any number of places, depending on where people are at. Well, it's just not how it works, the response is. That's, that's quite clarifying. Quite clarifying to know how things work. So how do we get eternal life rather than eternal judgment? Paul says here, persistence in doing good. Now that's all you've got to do, right? Persistence in doing good. And some of you perhaps are like, well, that's just what I thought. You know, the good people go to heaven. But in the broader context, of course, that's not what Paul's saying at all. He's saying that the standard for going to heaven and living forever in, uh, with a holy and perfect God, the standard for that is persisting in doing good all the time. Kind of never putting a foot wrong, never being proud, never uh, being hypocritical or self-serving or deceitful or envious or greedy or lacking in mercy, never, never doing any of those things. Uh, but he is saying here uh, that if you never do any of those things, if you persist in doing good all the time, uh, you'll get what you deserve. God is completely fair. You'll get eternal life. Uh, but he also knows that none of us can do that. Uh, some of us, of course, will do better than others. No, no doubt this moralistic person probably would. Uh, but none of us can always persist in doing good. It would be a bit like... Uh, if uh, we were all to go up to Sydney, say, uh, and I said, let's all uh, swim to New Zealand. If you swim to New Zealand, kind of from, you know, Circular Quay, uh, then uh, you'll get this wonderful reward. Now, of course, some people will do better than others at that. Some people won't get, you know, practically get off the dock. Some people might get out of the harbour. Some people might get to, what, Norfolk Island or something off the coast there. That's a long way. Right? But the reality is all of us are going to fall short of New Zealand. Or wherever you might be. In the same way, all of us are going to fall short of God's holy and perfect standards. This is a real promise. Persist in doing good all the time. In every way, you'll get eternal life. But it's an impossible standard. Because we're all sinful. We all, therefore, deserve God's judgment. And we all need the gospel. That's what Paul wants us to get. So what about the end, the last verses in the passage? Paul's kind of said that a positive outcome at God's judgment uh, it depends, is based on our persistence in doing good. And so he anticipates another objection. The objection from verses 12 to 16 is that surely that's not fair because the Jews have God's law. Like the law that God uh, gave them through Moses. Uh, and that law gives them kind of a head start in what it looks like to be good. Uh, that's a bit of favoritism there. That's not fair. But Paul says no. Right? In chapter 3 he says, of course, there are some advantages of being Jewish. We'll get to them in a couple of weeks. But it doesn't mean that God's going to show favoritism at his judgment because God's judgment is completely impartial, he says. Why? Because it's not based on the moral principles or the laws that we have, but how well we've done with obeying those principles. 
Right here, it's not based on the moral code or principles or laws that you have or you possess, but on how well you've done with obeying those principles. So this is clear. In verse 11, Paul said, God doesn't show any favoritism. And then this is clearer in the original language, the Greek. At the start of verse 12, there's the word because, the word for. So Paul's saying God doesn't show any favoritism. For, verse 12, all who, are, who sin apart from the law uh, will also perish apart from the law. Excuse me. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So those who sin apart from the law, that's, that's most of us, right? Non-Jewish people who weren't given the law of Moses. And those who sin under the law is the Jewish people. They, they did have God's law given through Moses. But notice two things in these verses. The first is that God's judgment is completely fair in the sense that he only judges people in accordance with the knowledge that they have. He doesn't condemn the, condemn the Gentiles for, for not obeying the law that he gave to the Jews. Right? God's judgment is fair in that sense. He only, uh, he only judges people in accordance with the knowledge uh, that they have. Uh, but the second thing that's clear in verse 12 is that whether you have the law of Moses or not, everyone sins and therefore everyone will be condemned. Look there in verse 12. Gentiles will perish and Jews will be judged. Not a good outcome for either, Paul's saying. Uh, and the Jews will be judged, verse 13. Uh, because it's not enough to simply hear God's law or have God's law. You actually have to obey God's law, Paul says. You have to do it. And we've already seen in verses 7 to 10 that, that none of us can do it perfectly. And verses 14 and 15, uh, Paul even says that the Jews in one sense aren't that unique in having God's law. Of course, the Gentiles don't have God's law that was given to Moses, verse 14. And yet somehow, by nature, they do at least some of the things that are required by God's law. Now, that might seem a bit kind of mysterious, but isn't this just what we all get, isn't it? Like, you don't actually have to have ever heard of the Ten Commandments to know that, generally speaking, you shouldn't go around murdering people or stealing stuff. This is what Paul's saying here. You you don't have to be uh, Jewish to have a a basic moral sense of what is right and wrong. Every human being who's created in God's image has that. And in verse 15, uh, he says, uh, sorry, we have that because it's written on our hearts, uh, in our consciences. Uh, And he says there that the the Gentiles know how they're going and living in line with with the knowledge of God's law that they have uh, by their consciences. What's the verdict of their consciences? Well, it's pretty clear there, isn't it? The verdict uh, is a mixed bag. The verdict is a mixed bag. See, sometimes their consciences accuse them of doing wrong, and sometimes their consciences defend them because they've done right. And that's, oh, I don't know, but that, that's probably true of your experience, isn't it? Sometimes you, you behave in a way and your conscience says, yeah, that was quite a good thing to do. And other times, you know, it was, a, it was an ordinary thing to do, right? Our consciences tell us that our actions are a mixed bag. And the point here is that a mixed bag is just not good enough for a holy and perfect God. It's just not good enough. I mean, imagine if you came over to my house for breakfast, and I said, well, I'm going to cook you an omelette, which is a bad start anyway, like that I'm going to cook, that I'm going to cook right? But uh, if I said, oh, I'm going to cook you an omelette, 
and it's going to have four eggs in it. And I just need you to know that one of them's rotten. But it's still basically a good omelette. Don't get confused. Three good eggs, just one. Just one out of four is rotten. What are you going to say? You're going to say, that is not a good omelette. I'm not eating it. it just It's not palatable to me. So what do you expect of God? My actions are a mixed bag. Oh, there's only a few rotten deeds. Right? Actions being a mixed bag is just not good enough for a holy and perfect God. A mixed bag is just not satisfactory. Especially when you consider verse 16 which tells us that God's judgment is going to reveal not just the sins we're aware of, but our secret sins. Everything's going to be exposed. Everything's going to be laid bare. None of us are all-knowing, but God is. Now Paul's making it very clear that none of us meet God's holy and perfect standard. God's judgment's impartial, because it's based on how well we've obeyed the moral principles that we have. Uh, two final things about God's judgment. The first is that uh, we see in verse 16 it's going to take place through Jesus Christ. So God the Father has entrusted this judgment to Jesus Christ, his Son. Uh, but second, uh, Paul uh, finishes this section by saying, uh, as my gospel declares. Uh, for some of us it's a bit jarring, isn't it? We've been talking about God's judgment. And then Paul finishes by saying, and this is all about the good news, the gospel. Well, what's the connection? What does Paul mean? What's the connection uh, between the good news of what God has done for us in Christ and this fair and inescapable and impartial judgment of God? What's the connection? The connection is that you'll never really hear and appreciate and experience the power of the good news of the gospel if you don't accept the reality of God's judgment. It's fine, you'll experience a watered-down kind of version of Christianity, some sort of version which is some good tips to make you a more respectable or moral person so that you can point the finger at others and show how much better than them you are. You might experience that, some good advice, some tips, some self-improvement. But you won't experience the good news of the gospel, which is fundamentally about how God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, has saved us from his judgment. That's why it's good news. But the gospel tells us that God first sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who he has appointed to rightly judge us for all of our sins, but God sent him to save us from our sins. Uh, and so one Christian writer puts it like this. He, he says, The essence of sin is that we take the position that only God deserves to take. Well, we all do this, right, from time to time. But this is the moralistic person in verse 1. You see, they're assuming the position that only God should take. The position of, of looking down at others, condemning others, judging others, as if they're somehow better than them. That's the essence of sin. The, the, the sinner takes the position that only God should take. And the essence of salvation is that in Christ, God takes the position that we deserve. But all of us are sinful, all of us deserve to be judged by God, but God in his abundant grace and mercy in Christ on the cross has taken the position that each and every one of us deserved, bearing the fullness of God's wrath and judgment in our place, that we might experience the fullness of God's love and grace and mercy, not because we're better than anyone else, 
but because uh, simply because we've put our trust in Jesus. And so we can know Jesus Christ, not primarily as our judge, who's going to reveal all our secrets and condemn us, but as our loving saviour. So let me finish just by encouraging uh, all of us today, uh, in the kindest way possible, you know, I've said this about myself, in the kindest way possible, uh, please do keep your mouth, your big mouth shut before God. Maybe that's a bit jarring. Uh, but the reality is you have to stay quiet long enough to truly hear this good news of the gospel. You have to stay quiet to accept it, to understand it, to experience the glorious power of the gospel. You have to stop making excuses, stop pointing the finger at others to, to make yourself feel better. And for the first time, or for the thousandth time, the, the ten thousandth time, uh, be thankful to God that there is one word that you can speak in your defense before, uh, before a holy and perfect God, and that is that you are a great sinner, but Jesus is a great saviour. That's the only thing that you can say. Uh, what was the song we sang earlier? My sins are many, are many, but your mercy is more. You can say that. That's the only thing that we can say. Let me, let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for this, your word. Uh, we thank you that you love us enough uh, to speak to us clearly about ultimate realities. Uh, that all of us will live once, uh, that we will die once, uh, that we'll face one judgment and that at that judgment, uh, there are only two possible outcomes. Uh, we know, Father, that in and of ourselves, uh, apart from our Lord Jesus, uh, that there's really only one outcome in store for us, uh, and that is indeed your judgment. None of us are perfect. All of us fall short. Uh, but we praise you, Father, for your great uh, grace and mercy to us in the Lord Jesus, that uh, he took our place on the cross, the place that uh, we deserved, uh, that we might, instead of experiencing your, your anger and, and wrath and judgment, uh, instead experience your blessing and favour and grace and mercy and kindness now and forever. Uh, you are such a good God. And Father, I pray for uh, each of us here that we be reminded today of these great truths of the gospel. Uh, and if there's anyone here who, who's never trusted in the Lord Jesus and your kindness uh, to them, uh, I pray that they would do that today. Uh, that they would trust, that they would say, I am a great sinner. Oh, but I know that Jesus Christ is a great saviour. In whose name we pray. Amen.